let's pray and then we'll look into the end of Mark. Father, we thank you for this time together. We're so grateful for Kyle and Della. Lord, thank you for their lives, their sweet children. Uh, thank you for that ministry. Thank you for calling them there, Lord. Uh, these are not easy places to go, but yet they would want to be nowhere else than where you've sent them to North Africa. And so bless them, Lord. Uh, may they know that our church loves them, stands with them, not only financially supports them, but stand theologically with them and help them in any way we can, Lord. So bless their ministry. May they know that we love them and care for them. Father, we thank you for today, for each and every one who's here today. Lord, we know that you caused us to get up and you gave us life and breath and you put a desire in our heart through the Spirit of God to be in worship today, to gather with the saints, not to forsake that, but to gather. This is something you've done always with your people down through time. You want us to be together. And you want your son, particularly in this church age, to be the head of all that we do, the center of all that we do. We thank you that we can sing that way and preach that way and fellowship that way. And Lord, we pray that that continues to grow in our midst. Father, I think of those who aren't here today. Lord, we have several who are in the hospital, even young children. Lord, we ask that you would just strengthen them, encourage them. We ask that you would heal them, Lord, and take away the infirmities that they go through. Lord, for some of our elderly, Lord, that can't get out and they're shut in now, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen them. May the message today bring encouragement to them. May you still give them ministry as they pray for us and others and share when they can, Lord, but help them to know that we love them. Father, we think of our nation this morning as it moves into times of election. Lord, we're, we're beginning to be more and more divided. Sin is taking its foothold in our nation, Lord, and we pray that the church will not like, be, not, be not like the world, that we would be different, set apart, Lord. That we would not love the things of the world. We are not here to be of the world, Lord. We're here to be in the world. And I pray that we would trust you. I do pray for our president and other leaders, Lord. Lord, give them courage, Lord. We pray for foundational truths that the nation was founded on, that those will not be lost, Lord. And Lord, the main reason is we want to keep preaching the gospel. We want to keep sending missionaries. We want that freedom, Lord. But no matter what you do, we will trust you and believe that you are doing what's right. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 16. We are coming to the final sermon of the book of Mark. Um, if you weren't here this last week, I would really encourage you to go back and listen at least to the first point of that sermon there I took on the challenge of explaining that these last 12 verses, um, I do not believe that they're actually part of the original manuscript. And I stand in very good company and I take great detail and try to show you that this was most likely a scribal, what we call a scribal addition to the end of the text. And that, that sermon, the first part of that, I really showed you how uh, textual criticism works and how we know and how we can have such confidence in our Bibles that they're absolutely the word of God. But there are a few places, just a few places, where we see scribal insertion. And these last 12 verses are one of those. Now, nevertheless, nevertheless, as we look at these last few verses, what we've been doing is that there's truth in them. Most likely, a well-meaning scribe wanted us to know the kind of the Paul Harvey. He wanted us to know the rest of the story. So he inserted some wonderful truths that are in here. And we're using other passages that we know are in the Bible here to explain those. But let me, let me say this again really clear. The Bible that you have in your lap is extremely accurate and has gone down through the ages and been, and been a, a tool that God worked through. Many people, many people died for that Bible that you have in your hand. Um, it's a precious word of God. It's extremely accurate. So I don't want to discourage you in any way as we look at something like this. The Bible is inerrant, but there are just a few places in the Bible that some, of the, some manuscripts added this, and so many of our Bibles, our English Bibles have them. You'll notice that there's a bracket in verse 9 to verse 20 in your translation. In and most likely you have a note in your Bible that says that that's probably not in the original or the, some of the, or the better manuscripts. Uh, however, we want to look at some of the good things this scribe does say. And we're actually going to use other passages to explain those. But listen, the book of Mark, I've, I don't know how long I've been in. I forgot to look when I started, but I'm finally done. <laughs> uh, what, a, what a great blessing has been to preach it. But Mark's gospel ends just the way it started. It ends with this great 
awe and wonder and trembling and amazement at the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 8, which is probably the right ending of this book. It says, they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment. Look at these words, had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. And I think that's very appropriate. This was the way Mark set out to explain the Lord Jesus Christ. That he was astonishing. That he was, he was miraculous in all that he did. And in the book of Mark has this theme all the way through it. We've seen the crowds as we study that were continually amazed at his instruction and teaching. They, they would marvel that, who is this and where did he get his learning from? They were marveled at his authority as he spoke. They were in awe of his authority over demonic forces. They, they marveled, excuse me, at his ability to heal uh, the paralytic man, to forgive sins, all of those things. We see this throughout the book of Mark. They looked at his authority over death. We remember those passages. He raises a little girl from the dead and, and they marveled at it. He calls Lazarus out of a tomb, come out. And, and Lazarus walks out of a tomb. All these things are succinctly recorded in the book of Mark. His own disciples sit in amazement of him. The Bible says they were very afraid as Jesus calmed the Sea of Galilee, that great storm. He speaks to his creation and it goes still. The disciples were terrified at his transfiguration. There in his transfiguration, he, he is revealed in his full glory for just a moment. They see the shared essence and glory that he has with the Father, equality with the Father, all there in front of them. And the Bible says they trembled before him. They saw him walk on water. His own creation, he just walks across it and he calms those things because he is in control of all things. See, the book was about awe and trembling. When he got into his teaching, he baffled the greatest Jewish leaders. They could not answer his questions. They could not respond to his statements. Men like rich young rulers were speechless when they left his person. He set hearts on fire and caused minds to, to desire to know who he was. And then, in the end, he sets his heart on going to Jerusalem. He knows that's where his death is coming. That knows that's where the end will be, where his hour is. And yet in all of that, he has complete control over the hour of his death. Over and over, he says, this is not my hour. This is not my hour. But then when his death comes, there in the garden, he says, my hour has come. This is it. He knows his death. He has full control of that. He knows the amount of days he is going to be in the tomb. He tells them repeatedly. And he knows what day he's going to be raised from the dead. This is awe. This is wonder. We, we're amazed at our Lord when we study this great book of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all these references remind us that we should not be surprised that the end of the book ends with trembling and astonishment gripping people. We should not be amazed at that. Because the tomb was empty. And there was news that he was resurrected. And so Mark has succinctly taken on these things. But as we discussed last week, we, we believe that these last few uh, verses are probably not in the original manuscripts, but they're full of truth, aren't they? We looked at it last week, and we saw some great truths, and we see those from other texts, and we want to do that this morning. So let me give you four thoughts as we look at, we'll, we'll look at a verse here, and then we'll jump off and go fulfill it, ful understand its fulfillment somewhere else. Number one, spirit-empowered missions in the early church, and the early church. God's going to do some amazing things. His intention was never just to save, you know, a handful of disciples and some Jewish people and let's call it good and end. From the beginning, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, he was going to be a blessing to all the nations. He said in Isaiah 49, it's too small a thing for me to only go to the house of Israel. Whole goal of God was always to capture the hearts of the world and draw people from every tribe and tongue, bring his elect to him through Jesus Christ alone. And so that's what we start to hear when we see this verse, verse 15 here. Um, this is what the scribe is trying to do. He's trying to help us understand in a summation statement that God's purposes were. He said, speaking that Jesus said these things, go into the world and preach the gospel to all creation. 
God did not want any limitations. Let's start in Luke chapter 24 where Pastor Brian read to us this morning our scripture reading. Luke chapter 24. And let's pick it up there and, and there we can find, we know this passage is uh, like all of the Bible is inspired by God and we can start to understand what he was meaning here. Luke chapter 24, verse 44 is where we want to stop, but I want to drop you into this scene. Luke does not record both appearances of Jesus coming into the upper room after his resurrection. The first time, remember, he comes, John records this. Everybody's there, there's 10 there, but not Thomas, right? Thomas says, well, lest I stick my fingers in the holes of his hand and thrust my hand in the side, I won't believe. Well, this passage picks up kind of the second account, which is fascinating. And here he has come with them, and he, verse 39, he says, see my hands, my feet, this is all taking place. Thomas's great statement would have been in here that's recorded in John. In fact, I love this because when he's done with this, he says, look, I'm hungry, you got anything to eat. Now that's good news that in our resurrected bodies, we're gonna get to eat. I like that. Um, and and we're, it says, the Bible says we're gonna be like him, right? So he wants food, I'm looking for that big lamb supper, um, whatever that will be uh, someday. But I like that. But so that's the scene, that's where we're at. And now look what Luke records here for us. Verse 44. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things that are written about me in the law of of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, he's now saying this twice. Remember, he said this on the road to Emmaus to the two disciples he was with, and then, of course, he disappeared, and their hearts were burning, and they ran back to the disciples. We've seen the Lord, right? So now he communicates that with them. Look, I am here, and I came, and I fulfilled everything that's written in the Bible about me. Now, I think this is an important statement. What Bible would they would have had in that day? They would have had the Old Testament, So Jesus says, look, everything, I came to fulfill all of these things written about me in the law of Moses. That would be your first five books of Pentateuch, Pentateuch, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's what we're studying on Wednesday nights. We're working our way through that, looking at Christ, looking ahead there. Now, all that was going to be filled not only there, but also in the prophets. So you have major prophets and minor prophets, and you have people like who David is called a prophet. All of those things, all were pointing to Christ. So he was giving them the tool they were going to need till the completion of the New Testament. Use the Old Testament, preach the Old Testament, it's about me. It's about me, it's about me. When Mark started, Mark chapter, 14, uh, chapter 1, verse 14, he said, Jesus came preaching the gospel of God. The gospel of God is about Jesus. That is it. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15 where God says in the garden, I will crush the head of the serpent and yet my heel will be hurt in a sense, right? Remember that statement? There is a great prophetic statement that Christ was gonna come, crush the head of Satan, take death and sin away from Satan, fulfill all that, free us from our sins and yet it would cost the Savior's life on the cross. And so we have all of redemptive history starting from Genesis 3.15 all working its way towards the cross and here he's giving them a biblical theology lesson in this upper room. Now look at verse 45. Would this have been cool? Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now remember they're they're still without the spirit right now. They do not have the spirit of God yet. It's a promise. He breathed on them in a promise in John chapter 20. We're gonna see that fulfilled here in just a minute. And, and so he's opening their mind and certainly now you attach the spirit of God to that. They began to have these aha moments. Remember, these men were not ignorant of the Old Testament. Many of them have been to possibly rabbinical school when they were 12. They've been trained in the Bible. They knew the Old Testament. They were waiting for the Messiah all the time. Now they're gonna open their Bible and go, oh, that was about Jesus. That was about Jesus. Oh, how did we miss that in Isaiah 53? That was about Jesus. And over and over, they're gonna start to see it was all pointing towards the Lord Jesus Christ and that's what they're gonna preach day in and day out till they get put to death. They're gonna preach that text. Look at verse 46. And he said to them, thus it is written, has to be the Old Testament, right? Thus it is written, has to be the Old Testament because they didn't have the New Testament yet. 
that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. He's talking about Psalms 22, Psalm 16, Isaiah, Isaiah 53, so forth. All of these things, this is already written, now use these scriptures. And then verse 47, and that repentance for forgiveness of sin would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning with Jerusalem. So here now comes this this commissioning of these disciples. You're to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Before it was offer this and offer that and don't eat this and don't do that. You are gonna go out in my name and all that I accomplished and all that I've done in my finished work and you're gonna offer forgiveness of sins to people. What a statement. This is the charge of missions. It's the charge of every believer who knows Jesus Christ as their savior is to go offer forgiveness of sins to people through Jesus Christ. And he's charging that. Notice the breadth of this this charge. In his name to, to just the Jews? How about just the Middle East? No, to all nations. All nations. Beginning with Jerusalem. Now, he's gonna put this on display. We're gonna look at this in just a moment in Acts chapter one and two. He's going to show them the beginning stages of what it looks like to go to all nations. In fact, here's what our Lord's going to do. He's going to bring all nations to them. And they're going to preach at the birth of the church, forgiveness and sins in Christ alone. And it'll start in Jerusalem. Now, verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. You saw this. You, you saw my ministry. You saw me rise in ministry. You walked with me. You heard my teachings. You were amazed at the things I did. You are my witnesses. Go tell others. Verse 49. I think that's true of us today. If you're a Bible student and if you have a Bible and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're a witness to Jesus Christ because you have witnessed God's perfect word to you. And now you're accountable to it. And you get to tell people how they can have their sins forgiven. Verse 49, and behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. Now listen to those words. Behold, I'm sending forth, I am sending, it's, a, it's something that's going to happen, it has a future tense to it, the promise of my Father upon you. Now remember, he promised in, in John 14, I'm going to send my Spirit John 16, the comforter's gonna come, the paraclete, he's gonna come and he's gonna rest permanently upon you. So Jesus says, I'm sending forth that promise. It's coming. They still at this point do not have have the promise upon them. The breath of Jesus on them in John chapter 20 is that guarantee that it's going to happen at a certain time. And we're gonna see that take place. Verse 50, um, end of verse 49, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. That's gonna be Acts chapter two. We'll see that in a moment. Verse 50, and then he led them out as far as Bethany and he lifted up his hands and blessed them so they're somewhere right around probably Mount of Olives. And while he was blessing them, he, uh, he parted from them and was carried away into heaven. Acts chapter one, we'll see that. And they were worshiping him and they returned to Jerusalem just like God had told them with great joy. And then here's a summation statement and they, conti- and they were continually in the temple praising God. And we see them do as they heal the man at the portal gates of the temple and so forth. Now, take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter one. We're gonna work on some things that we, that we just need to understand what's going on here because these are great events that how the Holy Spirit comes upon these people, all the things that take place. Now, Acts chapter one, one through 11 is where we're gonna start. Remember who wrote Luke? It was Luke. (laughs) And so Luke also wrote Acts. And notice what he says in the first verse. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So he says, look, I've told you, Theophilus, um, and this is an inspired text. Dr. Luke is writing this. And he said, look, on the first account that I've written to you, Luke's gospel, which is probably the most extensive work and the deepest work, says, I've written to you all about his life, how he came and what he did and how he died and resurrected. I've given you all that. But now what Luke is going to do is I want you to see the outcome of the life of Christ. And that's what the book of Acts is. It's the acts of the apostles living out the gospel. Verse two, until the day when he was taken up to heaven and after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles who he had chosen. So we read some of that already, right? To these he also presented himself alive after a suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Uh, First Corinthians adds that he appeared to over 500 
and all of the disciples and others and Peter and so forth. But verse four, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, so this is right in line with what we just read, but to wait for what the Father had promised. Here we are back to waiting to the residing work of the Holy Spirit. Now let's make something clear here. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon people to empower them for certain jobs, right? Even King Saul had the Spirit of God fall upon him, but the Spirit left him. And so in the Old Testament, the Spirit, that was his work. He would empower men and women to accomplish certain things that God wanted them to accomplish for him. But not so in the church. In the church, the Spirit of God comes and resides with us permanently. He does not come and go. We don't pray for the Holy Spirit to fall upon us as Christians. He is already with us. And that's the birth of the church. The birth of the church is when the Spirit showed up and stayed with them. We're going to see that in just a moment. Now, there's a lot of confusion about that, isn't it? People will take passages of scriptures and, and misuse them. And certainly, certainly there is a quenching of the Spirit. And don't be confused by this. If you want to live sinfully and not repent and be an angry person who doesn't love the Lord, you can quench the Spirit in your life. You, you don't have any love and joy and fruit. Those things, they just won't be there. You won't be patient and kind and you won't be long-suffering with others because you're, 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 li- you're living in some sin that you need to turn from and repent. But it doesn't mean the Spirit has abandoned you. <laughs> if you're truly saved, the Bible says he resides upon us permanently. The permanent dwelling of the Comforter lives within us. But here is where the start of the church is, is when that Spirit permanently comes. And so that's what he says. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. And that's the Holy Spirit. That's, that's where Jesus breathed on them and, and gave them the breath of the Holy Spirit. That was his promise that he was going to come. Notice verse 5. For John, uh, for John baptized with water. That's a different baptism, right? Still, the word baptism means to identify, but it was a cleansing. Confess your sins. Be identified that you're a sinner and you need the Lord. But notice what he says here, verse five. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So notice it's still a coming event in Acts chapter one. They have not received the permanent dwelling of the Spirit yet. It's coming. Now, verse six. So when they had come together, they were asking him, Jesus, saying, Lord, is it, is it at this time you will restore the kingdom of Israel? Now you can see where their minds are. And, and one of the things that's helped you understand, they don't have the spirit of God. They haven't figured out the new game is the gospel. <laughs> Stop worrying about the kingdom coming. But see, before they had the spirit, just like when the days they walked with the Lord Jesus Christ, they were concerned who's gonna be on the right and who's gonna be on the left. They're still doing this and there's evidence that they don't have the spirit of God. Once these men and women get the Holy Spirit and the church's birth, there is no turning back. These people step on the pedal and go for the Lord Jesus Christ and for the gospel. But notice they're still wondering about it. So Jesus says to them, it's not for you to know the times and epochs which the Father has fixed for his authority. Enough of that. I have something even better for you. Verse eight. Now notice the future tense here. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So he's back to, there's a time coming, there's a moment coming when you are going to be birthed as the church and the Spirit's gonna reside upon you just like every believer after you. At the time of salvation, it will fall upon you. And you, will, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. There's that great commission again, Matthew chapter nine, Luke chapter 24. Just what this scribe was talking about at the end of Mark, Right? And so here we have these things happening. Verse nine, this beautiful scene. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, looking on and, on, and, and a cloud received him out of their sight. So this is going back to the end of uh, Luke, right? And as they were gazing intently into the sky, can't you see this? While it was going on, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. You can just see these, these 11 disciples because we're gonna add Matthew here in a minute. And they're just standing here and all of a sudden there's two guys right here. What are you looking at? Don't you know? Look at this. I love this phrase. Verse 11. They said to men of Galilee, that's his disciples, why are you looking up into the sky? This Jesus, who you have seen taken up from you in heaven, now notice the future tense here, will come in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. 
Now there's a great promise there. This will happen. The same Jesus, this Jesus that you followed and laid your life down and have have given your life to and now are going to serve him into your martyrdom, he's coming back just like he left. Has he ever done this yet? So no matter what people's eschatology is, we have not seen this take place yet. The Lord Jesus has not quite been back here, certainly hasn't been back here. He hasn't put his feet back down on this earth, but he is going to. And we believe this, brothers and sisters, that the Lord Jesus is going to come. He's going to put his feet on this earth again. He's going to set his kingdom up, and he's going to rule, and he's going to get rid of all this mess. (laughs) And he's going to be a great, great, perfect king of kings, lord of lords someday. And so they're promised them. The rest of Acts chapter 1 I think many of you know what happens here. Uh, they return back uh, and they gather and then the disciples are numbered. You can see the names of them in verse 13. Um, they realize that they need to replace Judas and they give some very graphic details of what happened to Judas. Uh, uh, the gospel account doesn't tell you all what happened to him. Here it tells you that the tree branch broke, he fell and his body broke open. It was a bleh. You can read it for yourself there. But in verse 23, they picked two men um, and one of them, the lot falls to Matthias in verse 26. He is now at it. So now you have the 12 apostles ready to go, and we move to Acts chapter 2. Look with me at the first four verses. This is truly the birth of the church. This is when our church that you and I belong to, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the beginning of it. Chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there was from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there, there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing to themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak with other tongues, and the Spirit was giving them utterances. So here now you have these men and probably women. Um, in other places, the Bible says there was about 120 of them gathered together. Here they, they receive the Spirit in a remarkable way. Now remember what he told them. Remember he said, you are going to all of the nations. So what does he do? He gives them the ability to talk to other nations. See, this is not some wild, charismatic thing that so many of our friends get drugged off into. He is preparing them to fulfill what he told them they were going to do. He doesn't say, I'm going to send you to all the world, but not give you the tools to do it. And he shows them that this is not going to be your power. God's going to do this within himself. The Spirit of God is going to rest upon you. Now look at chapter 2, verse 5 and following. Now there were... Jews in Jerusalem, devout men, look at this, from every nation under heaven. See, it's all starting to come together why he was doing what he was doing. Verse 6, and when this sound occurred, the crowds came together. So this birth of this church started, people, they're in town for Pentecost, and so they're coming, they're coming together, they're hearing the sound, there's thousands and thousands of people are gathering together. And were bewildered, middle of six, because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. Isn't this what God said would happen? Exactly. Verse seven, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? What, wait a minute. These Galileans are talking to me in my native tongue. How is this possible? Now look at verse 8. And how is it that we hear each one of them in our own language to which we are born? The birth of the church. This is the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what God's doing. Notice he starts to describe this in verse 9. Parthians and Medes and Elamites, uh, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, uh, Cappadocia, Pontus, uh, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and districts in Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking the mighty deeds of God. Now listen to that word. The word tongues there is not a crazy word outside of our vocabulary. It's the word galassia. English. <laughs> we get our word what? Glossa. From, right? A gloss of words, glossary, right? This is, this, is, this is language, so that they heard it in their language. 
This is not some form of battling. And no, no, understand why we, not, we know this isn't some form of battling. Look at what it does. They understood that they were talking about the mighty deeds of God. I don't know how these Galileans are doing it, but in Cretan, I'm hearing the great mighty deeds of God. It's miraculous. This is exactly how God birthed the church. And he promised them that he was sending them to all the nations. So why wouldn't he do this? And yet today, too many in the church have made some fascinating thing about this. They chase this thing down. Nobody knows what they're talking about. There's rarely an interpreter. And it doesn't lead to the mighty acts and deeds of God. It glorifies man. And so we reject that theology. We have the inspired word of God now that we lean upon heavily at all, for all things in our life. Now, verse um, 12. And they were all continuing amazement of great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? Now you see the elect and the, un- the non-elect here. The, there's people going, wow, what's happening here? And then verse 13, there's God's going, they're drunk, right? They're drunk. And Peter goes on to say, look, it's not even the third hour. These men are, are from, they're from Judea. They, they live here in Jerusalem. God has done this mighty work. This is what God is doing. And he begins to show them. Remember he said, he showed them from all of the Bible, right? The Pentateuch, the Psalms, the prophets, that it was all pointing to him. So what does Peter do? He opens his Bible to particularly Joel here and a few other passages, and he shows them Jesus. And he shows them what's happening. He shows them that what's happening is God is pouring out his spirit and he's established his church and he uses these great texts both to show this is the day he was talking about. This is what the first century of the church is gonna go through, through, through even hardships as they prophesy of the truth. And there's even end times in here. But then he says, but the main point I want you to get to is verse 22, he wants to preach the gospel to them. So he says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, no mistake who we're talking about here in verse 22. A man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you know yourself. See, there was no debate. They knew who this was. This is why Mark's gospel is so fun to study. It's succinct and it's just one event after another. Mark just nails them. This is Jesus, this is what he did. This is what he said, this is what he did, this is what he said. And they know that. And that's how Jesus performed among them. So there's no doubt who they're talking about. Then verse 23, here comes probably one of the most powerful purposes in the scriptures. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. Let's stop right there. This was God's plan from the beginning. I will send my son and he will crush the head of Satan. He'll take sin and death and everything right out of his hands. But his heel will be bruised. He will suffer greatly. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah. He will go through that. This is my plan. It's the only way I can bring you to myself because your works are filthy rags. You can't get into my presence because of my holiness and your sinfulness. So I'm going to bring my son in to bring him to you. I'm going to lay down this plan and I'm going to execute it through the Lord Jesus Christ. But you say, well, do we have any responsibility in all this? Well, yeah, we're the sinners. Look at the rest of the verse. Peter says, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So he's showing the great display of the sovereignty of God, the sinful responsibility of man. You took the Lord Jesus Christ with all the Bible is about. He was the coming Messiah and you handed him over to the Romans and you had him put to death. You're guilty. You're guilty. And then verse 24, what a great conjunction here, right? But God. But God. But God raised him up again. And look at this phrase here, putting an end to the agony of death. Look, you and I have seen some agony, haven't we? We've seen loved ones pass away. Maybe you, maybe you dealt with somebody who was in very difficult pain in their last days. That's, that's life agony. That's not what this is about. This is about eternal agony. This is about the second death. This is about separation from eternal God. This is about suffering in hell. This is what he's rescued us from. He put an end to that. Scott Menez may die if the Lord doesn't return, and I don't know how my death will come. God's very creative of how he takes his children home. I do not know how that will happen, but I know I will never see the agony of the second death because Jesus Christ died for me. And this is the message they preached 
And, they, and, and notice the last phrase, since it was impossible for him to be held by its power, death did not have the power over Jesus. Jesus had the power over death. And that's the message of the gospel. That's what they were to take. This is what they're to take to the nations. We can tell you how your sins can be forgiven. We can tell you how, how you can have death taken away from you. The power and authority of death. What a great message they had. They, the next passage, of course, is they went to prove that, look, well, maybe it was David. There's a lot of Jews and even some weird religions out there uh, today believe that David was the Messiah. And, and he proves that it wasn't. David was looking forward to this day, he talks about. Verse 29, he says, our patriarch David died and is buried. His bones are with us here today. We have them. It wasn't him. He was pointing to the greater one. And verse 35 says, let, let, therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, Jesus whom you crucified. That's the message. And he's speaking it. And everybody's hearing it in their own language. And, and you know, we still do this today. We still do this, but now we have the completed scriptures. And so Kyle and Della believe that God's called them to North Africa and they study and they prepare and they go and take this exact same message the people who live far away from us in a different religion, in a different culture, but preach the same message we believe. That's salvation. And then finally, just to close this point out, this is my longer point, 37 is tremendous. Now when they heard this, the they is all these people with all these different languages, right? When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. See, you want to see people get saved? Preach the pure word of God. You want to talk about you and fascinating things and, you know, like people down the street throw the Holy Spirit at people? You want to talk about that stuff? You're not going to see people get saved. You want to see people get saved? Preach Christ. (laughs) He forgives sin. He's the only way to the Father. And guess what happens? They start to give their own altar call. Notice what they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles. Brethren, what shall we do? This isn't the people who think they're drunk. This is the people who are going, that's, that's God. And there's no way a Galilean can talk Christian to me. I'm hearing of this Christ. God prepared him for us, sent him. We killed him. And now he's offering us forgiveness. What should we do? See, I believe in this verse it's showing that faith has already entered them. And guess what happens when you have faith? A bunch of things go on. Verse 38, you repent. So Peter tells them the natural progression of what happens when you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. He plunges faith. The first thing you do is you say, Lord, I want to repent of my sins. I want to turn and go a different direction. I'm headed to hell. I don't want to go there anymore. That's what happens. And he's telling them what's going to take place. He says to them, repent. Repent. Turn from your sin. Recognize that your sin is going to kill you. That it's going to destroy you. And then he says, each one of you be baptized. Be identified with the Lord. Here's what's gonna happen. God's gonna give you faith. You're gonna repent. You're gonna wanna publicly tell everybody, I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what happens. The, 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 there's no way that, and I'll talk with this in a minute, that baptism has to do with the salvation of them here. Because that would be works, Right? So he says, here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna, you're gonna receive faith. Let me answer your question. Faith's gonna make you say, Lord, I wanna repent. It's gonna make you wanna identify with Jesus Christ and his people. I'm with them. I believe in Jesus Christ. I wanna tell you publicly right now. And then they're gonna say, why? Because I've, my sins have been forgiven in the name of Jesus. I've been forgiven of my sins. And then at that exact moment, when all this happens, right? This is a simultaneous work of God. He gives us faith. We repent. We identify with the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sins are forgiven. We receive the Spirit of God. This isn't some kind of sequence of events like, well, I got saved. I repented. I'm I'm waiting to be forgiven. And then maybe I'll be baptized. And maybe somewhere down the line, something really cool will happen and I'll receive the Spirit. See, that's way, way out of the parameter of the Bible. That's not what God's talking about here. He's giving them the order of events that take place right away. So when Scott Menez was saved as a young lad, at that moment, the Spirit of God fell upon me. You go, how do you know that? Because I knew I was a sinner. (laughs) Right? I repented. People don't repent on their own. 
That has to be a supernatural work of God. Every one of you that are believers in here, you're a supernatural work of God. Spirit of God fell upon you at the time of understanding, at a time of faith given to you, you repent. All this happens together, but faith starts it. Verse 39, I love this, and this is a great promise for us, for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off. Well, that pretty much sums up our families, doesn't it? We're not born Christians. My kids raised in a pastor's home, not Christians. I was raised in a first, first, uh, first Christians in our family to go to church and profess Christ. I wasn't saved because my parents went to church. This is a promise, and this is why we preach the gospel. I tell moms and dads all this time, believe that God is gonna save your children, but preach the gospel to them. Point them towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Help them see their sin. Let the Spirit of God use you to do that because this is what God loves to do. He loves to draw families to himself. Notice this, and this brings in both the great commission and election here. God promises to to draw people, go out and tell them the message. And then he says, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Limited atonement. As many. Who knows? I don't know. Well, how does this affect you? Uh, no, it doesn't. <laughs> I just keep preaching the gospel because God saves. And God's perfect in all that he does. He misses no one. He calls all who will come to him to himself. And so this was the message, and this is what these guys did. And boy, it just takes off from here. Acts chapter 8, you find Philip in, in Samara. He's preaching to an Ethiopian centurion. And, and he goes, this Ethiopian centurion, he goes and he takes back to Africa the message of the gospel. And, and as you follow out in church history, the life of the apostles, they get into Asia and Galatia and later Italy areas, and some of them into Egypt and, and India and so forth. And the message just keeps going and going and going. And the gospel is going around the world just like Jesus said that it would. And it all starts in Acts chapter two with the work of the Holy Spirit identifying a group of people as his church. And you and I, isn't this cool? You and I, 2,000 years later, are that group. That's our brothers and sisters there. Oh, I get encouraged about that. And then we have dear friends from North Africa, our missionaries, they're here. They're part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. They meet with house churches because it's illegal to have a, a church there where they're at. So they have house churches. And in that, those house churches, our brothers and sisters, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, it was birthed in Acts 2, is in North Africa. And it's in India. And it's in Latin America. And it's in Russia. And it's all around the world. Because that's what God promised to do. Second point, and I'm in a lot of trouble. So let's move. Um, back to Mark. The scribe says this in verse 16, and we're going to hit this really quickly. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Now, just quick little exegesis on this verse. Uh, those who believe in baptismal regeneration, that means you get saved and baptized, then you're saved, right? You, you profess and then you're baptized. So they believe in works, basically, right? You have to be baptized. So baptismal regeneration, church of Christ, assemblies, all those kind of stuff, believe in that. And they love this verse. First of all, I'm not sure, we're not sure this is actually inspired, but I think they just interpret it wrong. Now, so verse 16, he says, he who has believed and has been baptized. And then notice the second part of it, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. So the believer, the result of a believer is he gets baptized. The result of a disbeliever is he's condemned. Do you see that? That's just good, good hermeneutic, good exegesis of the verse. But there's too many people that take this and go, well, see, you, you've got to walk an aisle and say a prayer and roll around for a little while, and then you've got to get in the tub, and then you finally sealed the deal. Well, that sounds not biblical. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is what? Not of yourself. It is a gift of God. In fact, you just took the gift of God and paid for it with your baptism. Isn't that right? And the Bible goes on to tell us there that it's not a result of your works. Thief on the cross, hold on, time out, pull the nails out. I gotta get baptized or I'm not gonna go to paradise. That's not how God works. Baptism is this beautiful thing where we are identified publicly, but it is not, it's not salvific in that way. 
And if salvation is by Christ plus something, why stop at baptism? Well, let's start with commissioning babies. Well, and then maybe marriage and first communion. And so let's get, well, wait a minute, they are doing that, aren't they? See, we believe in Christ alone, through grace alone, by faith alone. Jesus plus something is nothing. And it's the danger of religion have added to it for years and years. Look, we protect the biblical doctrine of justification. Justification is that unmoving work, unmovable work that God saved us. He knew us from the foundation of the world and there was a point in time that he drew us to himself and he declared us righteous and dressed us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and he said, you're justified. You're declared righteous. That moment that doesn't move, you don't get more justified because you did some other things. You are ready for eternity at that moment. That's a finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you would say, Scott, well, what about progressive sanctification growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord? Well, that's the result of justification. God is so powerful. The work of Jesus is so great that it changes us not only in our eternal position, but in our daily walk. He changes us to live more with him. We begin to say no to sin by the power of the Spirit. We begin to learn his word and walk with him and enjoy him. Look, brothers and sisters, some of the dangerous things that have happened with Reformed theology is people have heard the doctrines of grace and they go, well, cool, I'm elect, I don't have to do anything. I'm good. And there's all kinds of people, and I, I, I named a term a long time ago, this, I call them Reformed confessionalist. Hey, man, this is great. God knew me from the foundations of the world. I can't lose my salvation. Sounds like I'm just going to go live my life the way I want to and then I get to go to heaven someday. Is that a believer? Demons know Jesus and shudder. Look, you can't interact with the perfect, glorious Lord Jesus Christ and it not have an impact on your life. We begin to grow. The Lord begins to change us daily from glory to glory into the same image of Christ moving us along. Our justification is rock solid. It doesn't change. We're not getting more justified. That's done. But in this life, he's conforming us more to the Lord. Like the Lord, he takes us through trials. He tests us. He puts us through difficulties where we're gonna trust him. He causes us to go to this word to find answers. This is all part of that. He puts us in a church where we love one another and teach to one another and disciple one another because we know this life is difficult, is full of devils that are trying to mistrack us. And so we grow in our grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And look, this finally on this point, baptism is an important step of obedience. I know too many Christians that through the years have come up and said, well, I'm saved, Pastor, but I've never been baptized. I go, why not? Well, you know, I'm a little older. I think it'll look kind of funny in the tub. What? Milt Mosier, I don't know if he's in here. Do you remember, remember Milt's where is he? He's around here somewhere. Maybe he's in children's ministry. Um, oh, I don't know if you remember Milt getting baptized. What a baptism. Man, I don't want to say his age, but many years, standing in there confessing the sin of a hard heart that went away from God and how God saved him. Look, friend, brother and sister in the Lord, if you're not been baptized, that's an act of disobedience to God. He wants you to publicly tell this body of Christ, you belong to Jesus. I belong to him. And so there's a great teaching in baptism, but it, you can't link it to salvation because then you're going to have all kinds of problems. We're going to start linking all kinds of things. It's the reaction to Christ. It's the reaction to justification, to be baptized, to be identified. Bapti baptismo, the Greek word means to be identified or immersed into him. I'm immersed into Christ, Romans chapter 6. I, I, when he died, I died. And that's what we say when the men, our pastors take them down, they go, buried with Christ in death, risen in new life and, and walking in new life with him. You know, just right out of Romans 6, 4, I think it is. Beautiful passage. So if you're here not been baptized, please come talk to one of the pastors. Let's get this done. Let's hear what God has done for you in the waters of baptism. Third thought, and quickly. Um, a pre-completed canon authority in a growing early church. I know that's a mouthful there. A pre-completed pre canon authority. I wrote this. Anything? Look back at, with me at Mark, um, verse 17. These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will 
pick up serpents, and they will drink any deadly poisons, and it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. We'll start right, stop right there. Now, there's several fascinating things that are in this. Again, we don't believe this is actually inspired by God. It's a scribal insertion, but it's probably inserted there because these things actually happened. And he had seen this. This is a testimony. A lot of people think this was written around the second century. So they'd seen a lot of things happen in the early church as the Bible was still coming to completion. Remember, Revelation doesn't get written to almost 100 AD. That's about the completion of it. So all those 70, oh, 60, 70 years there, all the scriptures are being completed. And they're seeing miraculous things still happen till the, till the passage to the Bible is fully canonized, Right? And, and so things like this are happening. And, and they know it. Mark chapter 6, verse 7, Jesus said, I'm going to send you out and I'm going to give you authority over unclean demons. And Luke chapter 10, they come back and they report to Jesus that, hey, even in your name, demons fled and came out of it. And Jesus says, yeah, I watched Satan falling from the sky like lightning. I mean, what a statement. Like the power of the gospel strikes Satan. It clips his wings in a sense. I mean, that's what's happening. So we saw these things kind of go on. We see evidence of this Luke chapter 16. Mark, uh, John, uh, excuse me, Paul's walking along. There's a, there's a demon-possessed little girl with a couple, of their, a couple of these wise guys that have control over her, and she's a fortune teller, but she's demonic. And Satan's speaking things through her. And, Paul, and she's saying, oh, these are servants of the Most High. She's saying truthful things, but God never wants evil to speak truth of him, right? So Paul, the, you can look at it yourself. Paul says he becomes greatly annoyed and he turns around and says, spirit, get out of her. Boom, she's gone. And of course, they start a riot and beat him up and throw him in prison. Um, but they did that. They had the power to do that, to say, these men are carrying my message. That's the authority that God gave them until this was completed. And once this was completed, now you begin to watch these men, the things that they did, they start to dwindle. Where Paul's handkerchief or shadow, or I mean, I mean, it's amazing what he was doing. At the end, he's telling Peter, well, have a little bit of wine for your stomach because you know, you're not doing well. Wait a minute, you, <laughs> he raised people from the dead. You can't help Timothy's. And, and God was bringing that to, to, a, a, to a stop where now we would trust in the authority of the word of God. And he gave him great power to do things. And listen, I just want to make one quick point here. You and I have the authority, in a sense, over Satan. First Peter chapter 5, 5 through 9 starts this way. God opposes the proud. You go, man, I feel like I've been attacked. Um, we're talking about spiritual warfare, which we certainly understand, don't we? Satan is like a roaring lion seeking about who he can devour. We understand that he says to put the armor of God on Ephesians chapter 6 because there's this, there's this battle going on that's not flesh and blood. It's spiritual, right? So we know this thing's going on. So God says, here's how you do it. Peter knew, that, knew how this was going on. Peter said, if you're proudful, God's going to oppose you. And you want Satan to get an inroad into your life, your business, your marriage, anything else? Be a proud person. Pride will always draw the gaze of Satan. Pride will always draw the gaze of Satan. But notice that he says this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. He says, but he gives grace to the humble. So this is how we begin to... Uh, have the ability to stand against Satan is, is we humble ourselves before the Lord. And then he says, therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you, uh, exalt you in the proper time. So don't, uh, don't humble yourself under the nation of America or under a pastor or something. Hum, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And you do this by casting your anxieties on him, not on pills, not on anger, not on anything else. You cast your anxieties to him. The one who died for you, the one who has your hand in his life, who, who secured your eternity, you cast them there because the Bible says he cares for you. But then he says, be sober in spirit, meaning stand in the spirit, stand in his truth, stand in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. Um, be in control that way. Do not sequester him so that you'll be alert for your adversary, the devil is uh, prowling around looking like a lion looking to someone to devour. And then it says this, but resist him firm in your faith. And this is what we do at this church. We try to disciple you. We try. We, try. we offer DTPs and discipleship programs. We have a brand new one. We're starting with about 60 men that we're working on to then put out to you. We're always working on this because we know Satan is always working on you. 
The world's working on you. Your own flesh is working on you. So the way we combat this is we disciple, make disciples, get in the word, teach people to exegete the word themselves, read it, observe it, interpret it, understand it. There's no greater person than a person who looks at the Bible and goes, God is awesome. Satan doesn't have a chance with that guy or girl. When that, when that person starts to go, wow, pastor, did you know Jesus raised from the dead? Yeah, I did. Isn't that great? For they're discovering it now. They're not just hearing it in a sermon, sitting there Sunday after Sunday, listening to sermons. They begin to, to find God and understand him through the scriptures. Their whole life changes. John said this, the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. You want to overcome the evil one? Abide in God. So many wonderful things went on to happen. They, I love the story of Acts chapter 10. Peter gets called to go see Cornelius. Of course, he's, he's a Gentile, and he's supposed to eat with him and talk with him. First of all, he doesn't speak his language. He doesn't eat his food. He gets there, and he speaks his language, and he eats his food. And Cornelius and the whole house gets saved, and they're all communicating the same language, and they're going, this has got to be God. And that's what God was doing, right? He's reaching all the nations, and you see these things happen. Mark, Mark chapter 16, verse 18 said that they'll pick up servants, they'll drink deadly poisons and will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Well, remember, Jesus sent out 70 at one point and they stayed with people and they were fed by people. And then the apostles went out and think about how vulnerable they were. They went out and they stayed with people. Apostle Paul's traveling along, staying with people in people's homes. They're not kings and princesses that are rich. Well, please try my food and my drink before I take them because they could be poisoned. There's all kinds of evidence in the church, in church history that many believers were poisoned, snake bit, all kinds of things happened as they tried to destroy the people who followed the Lord Jesus Christ. And some of them succeeded. We know that many of them were eaten by lions and any of them were poisoned and so forth. But God also protected many of them. You could go to the stories of Peter being locked up and God releasing him. And then I think what mainly this points to, is anybody know what it's probably pointing to? Acts chapter 28, right? Paul gets shipwrecked. They end up on the island of, of uh, Malta, I think it is. There he, he's serving everybody. So he's got a bunch of sticks and he's putting them on the fire. And he grabs a bunch of sticks and a viper just grabs him. About then I check out, you know, turn the page. Ugh, that's the last thing I want to happen to me. Um, but, and he has his viper and he's hanging on his hand, you know, or his arm and he, he shakes it off into the fire and the people there go, well, this dude's hosed. And the Bible says they literally sat down to watch him die. He didn't die. <laughs> In fact, not only did that, he got up, ministered to the chief's father, healed him, and got a chance to share the gospel. And church history says that there was, there was a, a movement in that area that they think is tied to that work. And so this writer here, this scribe who's inserted this in, in the end of Mark, is just relating things over the last two centuries probably that he's seen. And we know those things to be true. Um, he says, lay hands on James, the, probably the first New Testament books at the end of James 5.14 says, if you're sick, call the elders. They'll pray over you. These are things that they did. Verse 19, as we just finish up quickly here, uh, it says, so then when Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up in the heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Well, this is a great statement and, and certainly a very true, whatever this, whoever the scribe was and for whatever reason he wrote it, this was certainly something that's true. Remember in Acts chapter seven, Stephen, this outspoken leader in the church, has a group of the nation's leaders, right? And he's there giving them the gospel in a sense. He's given them their history of who they were, that Jesus Christ came, he was the Messiah, and they killed him. As they're stoning him, throwing, throwing rocks at him, you remember the scene in Acts chapter 7, verse 56. He said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That's what Jesus said at the end of his trial. He says, The next time you see me, I'll be at the right hand of the Father. This is the reward. He is the right hand of the Father. He has all authority, all power has been given unto me. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 in the Great Commission. Go make disciples to all nations. See, this is him. This is what the Bible says. Psalms 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Matthew 28, 18, he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Philippians chapter 2, 9 through 11, every knee will bow and confess his name. 
that he is Lord. Hebrews 1.3, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high after explaining all what he did. Uh, Hebrews 10.12, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, he sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 12.2, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's where he's at. Ruling and reigning from there. But he's coming back. And no elected official will ever stand against him. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Well, the last verse here says in Mark 16, 20, says, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word through many signs that followed. And of course, we've been looking at that all through this. And, and he did. He, the old covenant was done. This new covenant, they're pressing forward. And this was coming. And by the time you get to Paul's death and, and Peter's death, into Peter's death, he talks about the transfiguration. Then he says, but we have something more sure. And he's pointing to the scriptures that are being written then. The scriptures are, we have something more sure than the experience of the Mount of Transfiguration and all its glory. We have something better. We have the word of God. Paul, in his last words that are penned before he dies, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, he says, all scriptures are inspired by God. And he begins to launch into the beauty that we were gonna have. And now God has given us a greater, greater than signs and wonders. He's given us a completed canon of the scriptures. And, and I know as a lay person growing up, I didn't quite understand that until I started spending my life studying it. I would take this Bible over any power you could ever give me. Speaking in whatever or doing whatever, I would take this because I know this is God's word. I don't know what they're doing down the street at times. I don't know what they ate and what they thought and what dreams they're having. And I can't, there's no way to know if those things are of God. I do know my Bible is God's word speaking to me his words. I know what he wants me to believe and understand. And so I stand on the authority of the scriptures and I would be a fool of a pastor to give you anything else but God's word. And I would stand in judgment before him if I did. We open our Bibles, teach verse by verse at this church. It's why a lot of you are here. Because you're not following me, you're following Christ and his word. Amen? Last thought, the son of God is the gospel of God. Wow. Well, we start right, we end right where we started. Mark chapter one, one said, in the beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Just like them as they left the tomb, did you marvel, do you marvel at an empty tomb? Are you bewildered and, and like, wow, God, this is beyond human expectation what you did. I hope you're there and you see Jesus Christ as God he is co-equal, co-eternal relationship with the Father. He is God. And we, Bible-believing Christians, followers of Christ, are the only ones on the planet that believe that. We're the only ones that believe that. And all else will fall short of his glory because of that. And then finally, in verse 14, he says, Jesus came preaching the gospel of God. And we'll end with this thought. That is the gospel from Genesis 3.15 all the way through. It's pictures of Genesis 22 and Abraham with a knife ready to slay his son and God provides a lamb instead. It's day of, of atonement in Leviticus chapter 16 of, a, of the blood of a goat that can take away the sins and, 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 and take them away like they've gone forever and, and, and appease the wrath of God. I mean, it's just verse after verse after verse till you get to pinnacles like Isaiah 53 that he was crushed for our transgressions. God was pleased to do that, to bring us to himself. And all of the Old Testament points to that. And so the seed of the woman was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He's the son of God. He's your savior. And we only bow the need to him and no one else. Well, throughout the book of Mark, we consistently witnessed these events, didn't we? For probably about a year, I don't know how long I've been in here, but for about a year, we've watched Jesus Christ be the emphasis of wonder and amazement. We've expounded on his teaching and Learn from him. And at the end, I tell you, at least for me, I still tremble in astonishment of my Lord Jesus. I can go all day talking about the Lord Jesus. But I know you're hungry, so let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for the book of Mark. Thank you that it ended so abruptly, Lord, that it just ends in the, really the way it began with the astonishment and wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for all that you did. 
You came to this earth, Lord. It was our only hope. If you don't come here, there's no salvation. And not only did you come here, but you were born of a woman, born under the law. You suffered like we. You, you're sympathetic to us, but you were perfect with no sin, so you could be our sacrifice. You willingly worked your way to Jerusalem, and there you were indicted, falsely rest, accused arrogantly by wicked men of deeds you never did. But you finished it, Lord. You went all the way to Golgotha. There, they put you on a cross and you hung there till you, Lord Jesus, gave up your spirit. When you knew all had been accomplished, the Father's wrath had been appeased, when Scott and so many other people that sit before me, their sins were forgiven, you knew it was done and you gave up your life. But you knew you'd be in the tomb for a few days, but you knew you would be raised from the dead. And on that third day, you came out of that grave and proved to us our sins are forgiven. And now we want to be we want to walk with you. We believe. We confess you as our Savior, one who forgives our sins. We stand in waters of baptism and we say, thank you, Jesus, for saving us. And now we live for you. And I pray that the book of Mark and every time we open our Bibles, it would draw us and push us and encourage us to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing else worth living for like Jesus. And so, Lord, give us strength to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me for a closing benediction? Please listen. May God bless you and keep you and cause his light to shine upon you. May our heavenly Father, the Spirit of God and his word cause us to continually marvel and wonder and be in worshipful awe of our Lord Jesus Christ. And may we desire to lay down our lives and take up our cross and follow Christ alone until the end. Amen?